I'm Art Miller. This is Art Class, and it's about to begin. Please take your seat. Welcome to the North Shore Podcast, a podcast about the lovely cities of the North Shore, featuring topics like local news, sports, music, people, food, and history. My name is Pete. I'm joined with my co-host, North Shore history legend, Arthur Miller. And we all live in the North Shore. Hey, Art, how are we doing? Well, I'm just fine. How are you? Oh, I can't wait for part three. Part three of Sheridan Road. But before we start our class, we have a sponsor for the show, Dakota Insurance Group. They've got your back. Why? Because that's what friends are for. Dakota Insurance handles all your residential and commercial insurance needs. Get a quote now at dakotainsurancegroup.com. Okay, one of the goals of the podcast is for listeners to learn just a little bit more about the North Shore. Well, who better to teach us about the North Shore history than Lake Forest and North Shore history legend Arthur Miller? Okay, everyone, take your seats, fold your hands, and put them on top of the desk. Our class is about to begin. Art, part three. I'm sitting on the edge of my seat of the tour bus. Where, <laughs> where are you taking us today? Okay, we, we've gotten through most basically Highland Park, um, going north from uh, down in the, in, getting off of the drive in Chicago. Um, we went through Evanston, Wilmette, Kenilworth, Winnetka, uh, south part of Winnetka. And then in the last session, uh, part two, we started up the hill at Christchurch uh, on our way to Tower Road, and then going through Tower Road, past the famous Epstein Estate by Samuel Marks, then to uh, down through the ravines, which are typical north, upper North Shore uh, bluff ravines, uh, which is the only place you can really see those publicly. And then we went through uh, Glencoe, um, saw the Lakeshore Country Club, saw a um, couple of Frank Lloyd Wright houses, then into Highland Park, um, more Highland Park houses, I mean, more Frank Lloyd Wright houses, plus uh, Ravinia, up through to um, just the south end of Fort Sheridan, which is where I'm going to start. This talk really is, is focused on the Fort Sheridan area. Fort Sheridan was was donated by the, the land for Fort Sheridan was donated by the Commercial Club of Chicago in 1887 to the United States government's army to create a post for uh, the for an army post on Lake Michigan uh, close to the Chicago and Northwestern tracks, which are now the Metro North tracks, to um, allow for quick access to the city. In 1871, after the Chicago fire, there was kind of an outbreak of lawlessness. Then again, in 1877, a railroad strike, more lawlessness. Um, the 1886 breakdown um, followed a, um, a meeting of discontented workers in the Haymarket in 1886, May, uh, early May 1886. And the trouble was that it was all, because it was raining, um, most of the people were dispersing. There was a little crowd of people staying for the rally. And we know what rallies are like in Chicago. We see them all the time. And, you know, a little rain is a, pretty much of a deterrent. It's the end of a good, good down, a good downpour will kill any protest. So this protest was on its way off. And the mayor had gone home. He'd been there to kind of keep people quiet. 
some guy um, at the police station who was kind of like, I don't know, nobody will probably remember the old um, Andy Griffith show that had a detective who got a little excited and he wouldn't let him have a bullet in his gun. Well, they should have taken the bullet out of the gun of the police guy who came with his bunch of troops and marched into this, what's left of this bedraggled mob. Anyway, somebody ended up throwing an explosive device into the middle of the police people. Well, that led to a lot of trouble. A um, bunch of policemen were killed. Um, and then there was the uh, reaction to that, which was almost as serious. Um, they, they rounded up a bunch of the uh, usual suspects, the kinds of guys that were um, preaching um, radical ideas. Uh, they were the anarchists who were the pro-labor guys. People wanted unreasonable things like an eight-hour day. They were working 10, 12 hours. Um, and so they um, rounded them up, had a trial, um, picked a jury that represented, you know, kind of the establishment of Chicago. And pretty soon, well, a few of them got hung. The rest of them went to jail. And um, then the, the incident continued into the 1890s because the governor, the German governor, the anarchists were, many of them were German and Czech. The, the German governor pardoned a bunch of these at the end, which made the establishment, shall we say, unhappy. And we, this never happens anytime now, you know, this doesn't ever happen in our country. In the 21st century, only in the 19th century, do you have breakdown of sort of civility like this? Oh, yeah. um, right. So um, then the next year, 1894, there was a big um, railroad strike. But in between, they had this army fort started. And a couple of Chicago architects, Halliburton and Roche, were contracted to build this enormous military establishment on this uh, land. Now the land was kind of cheap because it had been kind of a little port before the railroad went through in 1855. And so it was pretty much garbage landscape, been kind of wrecked, but the army came in, took over, cleaned it up a little bit, had it landscaped by O.C. Simons, and then these buildings went up. And the most interesting building, and the one you can still see from Sheridan Road easiest, is a big tower that sits st straight up below that tower, going from east to west across much of the uh, much of the landscape there, uh, between Sheridan Road and the lake, was a big barracks building that was there. That also had the effect of looking like a wall between anything that would make trouble to the south and protected Lake Forest. Lake Forest was gonna be in effect protected by this. Lake Forest was already becoming a summer um, sort of retreat place for wealthy people, the Buckingham family, um, people on the board of trade, uh, big wholesale grocers and stuff like that. So this was protecting that Northern part, certainly looked like that. That fort got built. Now there's some wonderful parts about it, but we'll we'll talk about it further as we go along. Um, as you turn, you're pretty close to the lake as you hit Sheridan Road, just at the end of the, just at the south border of Fort Sheridan. And then if you turn directly to the left or back west, you go along the southern border of that property, that 
It's now uh, got a bunch of housing behind it that was built in recent years um, for naval base people. The fort closed in the 1990s. And by the early 2000s, they were building these houses for um, staff at Great Lakes Naval Training Station. Why would you say did Great Lakes Naval Training Station, which is up in North Chicago, move and take over this space? They were expanding. Um, in that same period after, um, in the early 90s, the um, Secretary of Defense, had, his previous job had been congressperson for the south, that southern southeast corner of Wisconsin <clears throat> at Racine. Um, Racine, Kenosha. Kenosha had lost a lot of jobs because of a, an auto company going kind of out of business. And so um, all these people were coming down to work at the fort if they could. Well, this guy closed the naval base at San Diego and centralized all beginning training for non-commissioned people at, Fort, at um, Great Lakes Naval Station. A huge move. Lots of jobs for Lake County, for um, lower Wisconsin. And um, so that meant that they needed more space. So when the fort was decommissioned, the Navy got a crack at a whole bunch of the territory. And they, they've been building office buildings and residential stuff there. That's um, pretty intense. So, uh, and that adds to the traffic on Green Bay Road, on Sheridan Road particularly. Very interesting. So you drive along here, you can see that new housing and you're heading into one of the interesting parts of this trip. Most of this trip, we've avoided going through the downtown areas, <clears throat> but in Highwood, you kind of can't avoid it. So if you go through Highwood, you're in one of the more, it's a fun spot. It was a fun spot. As soon as there were a, a few tents full of soldiers, already Highwood was becoming a fun spot. Uh, saloons, just like in the Old West, um, other colorful elements, uh, making this a recreational center. Um, later, restaurants developed. Um, there's old line restaurants like uh, just a block to the west, Del, Del Rio's restaurant, Froggy's, different kinds of restaurants. It was an Italian community. This is where all the stone cutters for the fancy Lake Forest houses lived. They came, most of them came from Modena in Northern Italy. And they were generations of stonecutters. Um, it's now got a large Hispanic population also, uh, but they have all kinds of festivals, what the French call animation, different things to bring people into town. We're gonna have pumpkin fest pretty soon. They have carnivals, that sort of thing. So Highwood is always lively. There's always something to do. There's always someplace good to eat and lots of new places, mix of different kinds of cuisine. Um, so it's a great thing. So you drive along, when you get to the stoplight um, there, you, you keep going, um, but on the right, you'll see some of these new office buildings that have gone in for the Navy, and they're, they're making good use of that territory. But just north of that, it begins to be the recycled uh, um, part of the place. It was turned into a, a development called Fort Sheridan Town, and, or the town of Fort Sheridan, I'm sorry, the town of Fort Sheridan. And um, at the southern end, it takes some of the old stable buildings and turned them into houses. It has all kinds of buildings that have been re reused then interspersed with new construction. As we go along, we go through, past um, some apartment buildings 
But then we go and there's a little bit of a gentle curve to the west again. You're going around what was the headquarters for the um, North Shoreline Interurban Railroad that went in, it went through Lake Forest in 1899, um, went up to there a little bit before that, but there was a great big rail yard here and the headquarters building for this whole interurban railroad system, which was big from the 1880s, a concept that was big from the 1880s through the 1920s mostly, started to fade in the 20s by the time that the, the federal government and the states got their act together and started organizing uh, paved highway development uh, about 1925, 26. Um, that kind of doomed the urbans. It took 20 years for it to 20, 25, 30 years to die in Lake Forest, but it was still, it was on the wane. But that was a huge thing there. And as you're just passing that, you go over a little hump, a little bump, because this is all rolling territory along here. And on that bump had been a spur for taking those troops from the fort into the city. The only time they ever made that trip to reinforce the city to protect it against urban unrest was in 1894 for the railroad strike. Uh, the Pullman, there was a depression after the 1893 World's Fair and the Pullman company had a problem. They, uh, let their, they cut their workers pay, but they didn't cut the rent in the town of Pullman. And this put these guys between a rock and a hard place and they went on strike. And their, their union leader, Eugene B. Debs, um, turned that into a national railroad strike because Pullman cars were used on all the different passenger cars. So pretty soon, rail traffic in the United States ground to a halt. That's like saying not only Facebook going offline for a few hours, but the whole internet going away for weeks was, um, shall we say, disruptive to the national psyche and everything, uh, the economy, everything. So uh, there was a lot of pressure on Debs to uh, cave. Um, and he ended up kind of spending a little, he had a little um, time out in a, in a prison um, <laughs> to sort of suggest he might think of a more peaceful way to do things. Um, so then he, what Debs ended up doing was from 1900 to 1920, running for president of the United States. Um, so he rechanneled his energies, but not entirely to the satisfaction of everybody else because the third party always screws up the works. That was a huge thing. And that little stretch of track there showed the potential for going into the city and closing down quickly any kind of big scale urban unrest. Thank goodness we never have any of that anymore. Now we go on to past that, we go to a little stretch of buildings a little kind of a it's a, a one long strip mall that's basically downtown town of Fort Sheridan uh, it's restaurants a lot of restaurants there are other kinds of services available there and there's even a funeral parlor and a McDonald's and a Starbucks the usual sort of thing but on the other side of the street is Fort Sheridan and if you go up to the next stoplight you can turn right into Fort Sheridan and make a little digression and it's worth it to just go down close to the lake, see these beautiful captain's houses that were built in, uh, 18, in the 1890s. They're fantastic. They were then, the people that bought them around the early 2000s or so bought these places and then more or less upgraded them, you know, they were very nice, but they probably 
they had a few things that they needed, like air conditioning, kitchens, bathrooms, and that sort of thing. So they put that kind of thing in. They're very nice. It's an ideal place to live now. Um, there are all kinds of apartments in that great big long building that goes east to west. And um, this big open field, which is the, the um, wonderful um, parade ground. And then north of that, as you cross, after you go through the light, go back onto Sheridan Road, go through the light, and you cross the sign that says, welcome to Lake Forest. And then you'll notice one of the interesting things about Lake Forest. This is one of three Southern entries to Lake Forest, Sheridan Road, 41, Route 41, and Waukegan Road. And each of them, as you're driving north, you don't see anything except nature. Mostly nature as you're going along on both sides of the road. There's a bike path, and then the tracks to the left on Sheridan Road. And on the right, you go past a little reserve unit. That's all that's left of the army after all those years. And then there's a roadway into uh, a cemetery, a veteran cemetery that um, grew rapidly in recent years because of all the World War II veterans who passed away and went into that cemetery. And it's a very hallowed ground and very um, nice place to visit also. Um, but then you go just a little bit past that, you're again against, you're into the territory of why they moved that roadway to the north, I mean, sorry, to the west. But it used to meander through the middle of the territory between the tracks and the lake. But it moved um, all the way to the tracks in 1908. The landscape architect, uh, the family landscape architect for the McCormick's, Warren Manning from the Boston area, came out and, re and, and shifted that road all the way west of the tracks to its current location. And then a big estate was built, 200 acres, for the younger son of the original Cyrus McCormick, the founder of the McCormick Reaper Company. And by 1902, um, this was part of International Harvester, and Harold McCormick's brother was Cyrus uh, II, was the president of that um, large combine of different uh, farm implement companies called International Harvester. So Harold, though, had, because he spent a lot of time in the East, he'd gone to school in the East, and one of the kids that he'd met when he was out East was a little girl called Edith, Edith Rockefeller. Now, Edith Rockefeller's dad was on the rise. He was the, um, really the inventor of the big trust, but he was the, his own trust was the Standard Oil Trust. And that was a big um, a group of things where he would, it was like, like what the monopolies are doing today. If there was a little outfit that was competing with them, they would make them an offer they couldn't refuse. Either join us and be successful and get a great return on your money from your investment, or we'll wreck you, we'll break you down. We do hear some little rumblings of this about, you know, Facebook and Google and things like that. Um, but this was invented by, in America, by uh, John D. Rockefeller in the 1870s and 80s. By uh, the early 1900s, his daughter was old enough to get married, and she married this uh, cute guy from Lake Forest or from Chicago, Harold McCormick, and they they started this little 200-acre estate. Um, immediately north of Fort Sheridan. 
Um, now, the reason that Highmarket Riot had started in 1886, it was thrown in honor of the McCormick family. Their reaper works had had a little dust up a day or two earlier. Some of their security guards discharged um, bullets into some of this, the um, protesters. This led to this consternation and why they were having the big meeting at the Haymarket. So the McCormicks always took it very personally, everything having to do with Haymarket. Um, and they also were pretty concerned about people's impressions of them. So his brother Cyrus had already built the house north of Wesley Road in the formal city of Lake Forest, part of the 1857 plan. Um, and he had his house built back far enough from the bluff that the hoi ploy walking along the beach couldn't see it. Edith wants to do something else. So at that time, the lake was very low. Harold in about 1910 could land his airplane on the beach down below. They also had a swimming pool down below, um, all kinds of things that lasted until about 1930 because they'd reversed the flow of the river in Chicago in 1900 about. And so they were draining water from the lake to carry sewage out through the Chicago River to the Mississippi Basin so that the Mississippi River and all those things would clean the water. That's the theory. But it didn't make the lake dirty and it did keep from having typhoid getting into the water. There were the McCormicks and they're just north of that line. This huge estate got built. So who had the most money? Rock, break, scissors. Edith had more money than Harold. Harold was doing great, but he didn't have as much money as Edith did or Edith's father. He was the richest man in America. Um, by the time he died in 1938, he owned about 15% of the gross national product of the United States. Nobody has ever had anything like that percentage tied up. I mean, all the lining up all the guys, uh, the, the Bill Gates and everything, you wouldn't get to that point. So um, he had a huge stake. So she wanted a palace on the level of his fortune. And so she started spending money. She didn't have a lot of sense of what her, how much money she had because her dad had never really trained her about that. But she, first they had a guy trotted in, James Gamble Rogers, the guy that did the building in Lake Forest, that's the, uh, the Walgreens store building. Um, James Gamble Rogers, well, he down, he didn't get it. He didn't get the job. Then Frank Lloyd Wright, this great big, huge presence growing all the time in Chicago, had a, did a plan for that place. He crashed and burned. That, he was probably being promoted by Harold, but that isn't what Edith wanted. So Frank took it hard. He decided to, he had a nervous breakdown, or we'd call it a breakdown. He quit his job, left his family, ran off with the wife of one of his clients, Mrs. Cheney, to Europe, just sort of took care of himself, worked on a big uh, book over there that was being published of a lot of his plans. It was kind of the end of his movement, that his first stage of his movement. Um, he was kind of done for. And back in Chicago, because he ran off and left his family, he never recovered socially. And that really negatively affected his uh, career also. Um, running off with um, somebody else's wife and leaving his own family basically stuck was not cool. That was a problem. So th those were two people that went down in flames over that contract. The third guy was a New York architect who had was the leading pro uh, uh, proponent 
of Italian gardens and houses. He was building them for people in the East, Charles A. Platt, and he designed a villa that was as authentic as anything you could find um, on the bluff with a huge water cascade down the bluff, just like at the Villa Lante um, outside of Rome, built for some cardinal in the 16th century. The house was enormous. Um, these 200 acres were developed with all kinds of gardens and malaise and staff quarters. The word is Edith, and this happened, this happened between 1909 in 1912, and then there was lots of finishing done on it. Edith would go out there during the daytime. She had a, she had a little tiny pied-a-terre um, kitty corner from the Drake Hotel where she lived, a house that she owned, and that's where she really lived. But she'd go out for the day, have garden parties and things like that, only slept there one night. One reason might be that during World War I, 1917, um, they started having gunnery practice just to the south you know, maybe a quarter of a mile south at five o'clock in the morning. So these enormous explosions at five o'clock in the morning made sleep impractical on the site. So she stayed home until the guns stopped blowing. And, but there were garden parties there all through the twenties and everything. So that was a huge, huge success. So um, what I'm gonna go on to do is to talk further about it, but I'm gonna maybe have a fourth session if that's all right. Uh, but I think that getting to the, going to see Villa Turicum is worth it. The, the building was torn down in the 60s, her house. It was replatted as a subdivision in the 1950s by um, a wonderful landscape architect called Marshall Johnson. He was, he was, um, he'd been a, a walk-on assistant for Jens Jensen when he was building the big house in uh, Lake Bluff uh, for the Kellys. He'd worked with him, he'd married Jensen's daughter, and then took over his job uh, when Jensen retired in 1935. By 1957, he was laying that out. He drew a diagonal line through the site of the old house, and that was now two lots, and preserved some of the things. And a new, there was a new house built in 1988, torn down, oh, probably five years ago or so, and replaced by a new Italian villa. Uh, that's on that site. So the place has got all kinds of development going on. It's a lot of new houses, wonderful places on the lake, villa-like places. And there's only one tiny sort of outbuilding left of the original Villa Turcum, which was this enormous property. It's a tea house on the south end, uh, close to the lake. It's on one of the, it's on the last uh, property. If you're going down Circle Lane, um, it's on that property. And I think that's just recently changed hands. I don't know who the current owner is. Um, it's just a wonderful classical tea house there. And that's it. Otherwise, Villa Turicum is a wonderful new development laid out in a kind of informal manner like the east, um, the east part of Lake Forest. And um, that gets us to, the, to, the, to that part, basically to the city limits of Lake Forest. So the tour bus stops. Beep, beep. Right, right before Lake Forest. Is that right? Yep. Oh, I can't wait for part four, Art. You you run a great uh, tour bus, I'm telling you. <laughs> There's some fun stories, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wonder how many uh, stops we're going to make here. And we didn't even get into Harold McCormick's later wives. What? Yeah. Uh, all right. Okay. 
Okay. All right. I like it. I like it. I like it. All right. Thanks again for making me smarter on North Shore history. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the North Shore podcast. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Let us know what you'd like to hear about in the upcoming shows. Again, I'm Pete, and I can be reached at Pete at NorthShorePodcast.com. The link will be in the podcast notes. On behalf of my co-host, Arthur Miller, we thank you for listening. Art class is now over. Meet, meet, cue the band. Mm-hmm.